Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and you may remember me from last week when I talked very seriously about spanking for the better part of a half hour, listed my sources, and left. That's me. How's it going? It's not easy to follow a subject like Teresa Berkeley and her Victorian sex dungeon, but all those empowered women got me thinking about Hot Girl Summer. Of course, the song Hot Girl Summer was released by Megan Thee Stallion back in 2019, but as ever, popular culture is lagging a solid two years behind anything interesting, and now everybody online is asking the important question, what is Hot Girl Summer, and is it cancelled? Well, not if you're vaccinated, it's not. With its emphasis on independence, fun, and positive body image, the whole idea of a hot girl summer is infinitely preferable to the dreaded bikini season of yore, more of a threat than something to actually look forward to, something that always seems to lurk just around the corner, driving retailers to mark up gym equipment on New Year's Day with the promise that by June, you might just look like Christy Brinkley. Except it's not just retailers doing it. In terms of pushing fat phobia, they're not the worst offenders, God bless them. Oh no. Most of us on the receiving end of it are getting it from friends, family, the media we consume, and possibly worst of all, certain doctors who can't or won't look beyond weight. On that note, today we're going to look at the incredibly problematic history of BMI, or the body mass index, and follow that with a few terrible weight loss ideas from history. The BMI discussion touches on issues of racism and eugenics, so if this upsets you, and honestly, it should, feel free to skip to the second half for something a little lighter. Like, well, say that, it, it's, it's not actually that much lighter. Anyway, as far as the historical weight loss ideas, needless to say, please don't try this at home. These days, it seems like everybody is obsessed with weight. You get it from all sides. The voices championing body acceptance and positivity are all but drowned out by people insisting that fat is unhealthy, unattractive, or even some kind of moral failing. But it wasn't always this way. Different cultures and periods have had different ideas about the ideal body, but with a few exceptions, being heavier wasn't always a concern. Prior to World War II, being underweight was seen as more of a problem, as so many people were malnourished because they couldn't afford enough calories to keep them at a healthy weight. But what is a healthy weight? To figure this out, a lot of people, particularly doctors and insurance providers, turn to BMI, or the Body Mass Index, which is a number determined by your weight divided by the square of your height. BMI is used to determine insurance premiums, and having a higher number means insurance companies and doctors can, and frequently will, deny you the care you need until you lose the weight, often with devastating results. Why? Well, not all health problems are related to weight, and denying people potentially life-saving screenings or treatment because of their weight is frankly inhumane. It's not that easy to lose weight quickly in a healthy way, and finally, crucially, BMI is bullshit. BMI is based on a formula worked out by Belgian mathematician Lambert Adolphe 
Jacques Catelet in 1832, known until fairly recently as the Catelet Method. Now, Catelet was not a doctor. As part of his work in statistics, he wanted to establish a baseline for the average man. You know, the average, healthy, northern European man in 1830. He wasn't trying to use weight to determine the health of an individual. He just wanted data to represent average biometrics for mass populations. In A Treatise on Man and the Development of His Faculties, Catelet explained why it was so important for him to establish this model. He said, quote, If the average man were completely determined, we might, as I have already observed, consider him as a type of perfection. Everything differing from his proportions or condition would constitute deformity and disease. Everything found dissimilar, not only regarded proportion and form, but as exceeding the observed limits would constitute a monstrosity. Ooh, monstrosity. That sounds like a bit of an exaggeration. Surely he didn't mean that anyone who wasn't an average white guy was a monster, right? Except that is what he meant. By the 1830s, Catelet was balls deep in racist pseudoscience, co-founding the school of positivist criminology, which encouraged harsher punishment for people who seemed to be more dangerous for whatever reason. He is also thought to have founded the field of anthropometry, which includes phrenology. If you've never heard of phrenology, congratulations. If you'd like to continue to live your life blissfully unaware of this bullshit, I encourage you to skip ahead about 30 seconds. Still there? Okay. Phrenology is the study of the skull as it pertains to character. Basically, they thought the shape of your skull could determine your personality and mental health. They would measure skulls and catalog features as criminal, deranged, or otherwise. It's nonsense, obviously, but Catelet's work paved the way for 19th century criminology professor Cesare Lombroso, who genuinely believed that criminals were part ape. He thought people could be born criminals and that certain physical characteristics gave them away. Unsurprisingly, almost entirely features associated with African, Native American, or East Asian people. Today, he would be exactly the kind of investigator who'd turn up to a crime scene and immediately rule out the pretty girl as a suspect, even if she was literally standing over a body with a murder weapon. He didn't like people with epilepsy or disabilities, and he thought that being an artist, particularly a passionate one with multiple talents, was a kind of degenerate madness. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Lombroso's ideas are frankly too gross to get into in any real detail. His whole career was basically an attempt to justify racism and judging people by appearance. But he wasn't the only one doing this. Throughout the 19th century, as white men were having a collective fit over the perceived threat to social status from women and other races, they habitually turned to quasi-scientific studies to prove that they were genetically superior to everyone else. A lot of this happened around the mid-19th century, when there was starting to be real debate about the institution of slavery. In response to the abolitionists fighting it on both sides of the Atlantic, several pseudoscientists got involved to play devil's advocate. <laughs> We've all met that guy at parties. You know, the one who smugly crosses his arms and argues the least popular side of any issue for hours, trying to score cheap points off of you and pull the group's moral compass straight into hell for the sake of sounding clever about a subject he doesn't really understand or care about. He's not clever. He's just an asshole. Unfortunately, so are a lot of these 19th century scientists. 
For the sake of science, or worse, anthropological study, other races were fetishized as they were dehumanized, all of it dressed up as serious scholarly research, some of which is still, somehow, taken seriously today. One of these groups, though not the worst, if you can believe it, was the Cannibal Club. The Cannibal Club was the name given to the inner circle of the London Anthropological Society. As the name suggests, they were particularly interested in imperialism and colonized people. Not in helping them. Oh god, no. They were there to objectify the absolute hell out of them. Officially, they were serious gentlemen devoted to serious study, but unofficially, they produced most of the pornography in England between 1860 and 1880. They were also casual Satanists, admittedly bisexual, and low-key worshipped the Marquis de Sade. They were basically the equivalent of a bunch of coked-up frat boys wanking over old issues of National Geographic, but their wealth and status meant that they were taken seriously and given passes to do basically whatever they wanted. You know, like frat boys. Anyway, these dubious quote-unquote studies led to the bullshit theories of social Darwinism, eugenics, and the obsession with racial purity that plagued the West through the early 20th century, leading back to our first episode where birth control was suppressed and abortion was outlawed at the end of the 19th century to basically force white women to have as many children as possible, all the while women of other races were subjected to forced sterilization, horrific medical experimentation, and a serious lack of pre- and postnatal care, all systemic problems so ingrained more more than a century later, that most people don't realize that they were started by a handful of batshit Victorian men hyperventilating over the imaginary threat of being replaced. <sighs> I'm going to take a breath. Look, you only have to glance at Twitter to see that racists are still having unhinged nightmares about white male obsolescence 200 years later. The more things change, the more they stay the same. They're still assholes, though. So what does that have to do with BMI? Oh, more than you'd think. In the early 1900s, health insurance companies began to link body fat with heart disease. Height weight tables were developed to assess overall health at a glance, but these were based almost entirely on data collected from white men. Even though they couldn't reliably apply to white women or people of color, these tables were used to determine insurance coverage or, even worse, whether or not a doctor would even take you on as a patient. They claimed that heavier people had more health problems, but by denying them the coverage and care they needed, that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Increasingly neglected by the medical world, heavier women and people of color would succumb to undetected illnesses and die younger. Leaving who, exactly? White men and younger, thinner white women. Eugenics is a bitch, and the more you study 19th and 20th century history, the more you see how it has permeated almost every aspect of healthcare in the Western world. Though America rightfully shamed the Nazis for doing it, policies with racist origins were baked into the proverbial apple pie cooling on every windowsill in the heartland. It's inherent in medicine. There are still people who believe today, in the year of our Lord Gritty 2021, that different races process pain differently for fuck's actual sake, ignoring red flags, limiting access to medical care, and denying people the pain control they sometimes desperately need. These issues are systemic and serious. It won't be easy to turn things around, but we're not going to do it by continuing to uphold a racist weight index as the gold standard of health. But I digress. So the tables based on the height and weight of white men were flawed. Big surprise. By 1972, obesity researcher Ansel Keys decided that it was time to replace it with a formula based on the height and weight of white men. You were so close, Ansel. 
Because of Ansel Keys' research, the Ketele method, repackaged as BMI, has been used in a clinical setting since the 1980s, but the goalposts have been moved since then. Right now, a BMI below 18.5 is considered underweight. 18.5 to 24.9 is normal. 25 to 29.9 is overweight. And 30 plus is obese. But it wasn't always this way. Until 1998, the overweight threshold was actually 27.8, but the National Institute of Health lowered it to 25, effectively declaring 29 million Americans fat overnight. These new guidelines were drafted in part by an organization called the International Obesity Task Force, which sounds like a good thing until you realize that their two main funders were companies that made diet pills. At the time, the chairman of the board who made the decision, a Columbia University professor, was a consultant for multiple diet drug manufacturers and Weight Watchers International, which doesn't sound like a conflict of interest at all. More than just a label, BMI is actively harmful not only because doctors who accept it as gospel frequently blame unrelated health issues on weight or deny patients life-saving screenings and procedures because of it, but having a higher number also drives up insurance prices. How much? You might want to sit down. As compared to people BMI categorizes as healthy, people considered obese can expect to pay between 25 to 50% more for their health insurance, which makes a big difference in a country where monthly premiums can already be higher than your rent or mortgage. And crucially, BMI doesn't mean anything. Although 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight, that's actually the healthiest weight for most adults. 47% of people categorized as overweight are metabolically healthy. Just as bad the other way, many people categorized as healthy based solely on their BMI are anything but, and that healthy reading might mean that other potentially serious issues are missed. Although the data that led to the development of BMI was taken from white people, and 19th century probably malnourished ones at that, it's still applied around the world. The trouble with that is that different groups of people should have different parameters for healthy weight based on their body types. For example, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a study back in 2003 showing that black people tend to be healthier with higher BMIs, and furthermore, black women are not more susceptible to weight-related health issues until they reach a BMI of at least 37. To their credit, many doctors are becoming increasingly aware of the limitations of BMI as a screening tool. Even the CDC admits that it is not a reliable indicator of health or proportion of body fat. One huge blind spot with it is that it doesn't allow for muscle mass or bone density, meaning that some very athletic people can be classified as officially morbidly obese. And besides, having a little extra weight isn't necessarily a bad thing. People who are a little overweight do better with heart, lung, and kidney diseases, and they're actually more likely to survive surgery and car crashes. So BMI is bogus, but what does it do? Apart from limiting access to health care and affordable insurance, high numbers make people judge themselves and others. Fat phobia is everywhere, and it can be incredibly damaging. Fat shaming and one-size-fits-all, largely European beauty standards, drive a diet industry that, as of 2021, is worth $71 billion per year, even though a staggering 95% of all diets fail. And failing might not be the worst thing they do. Chronic dieting can lead to heart attack, stroke, 
kidney failure, and diabetes, the very issues dieting claims to help. So what can you do? Look, in spite of this rant, I'm not telling you to give up. We're not a health podcast, and we can't give you that kind of advice, except to say that you should take your health seriously, but bear in mind that it's yours, and no chart is going to perfectly reflect your body type and circumstances. It's much more important to take a holistic approach to health and get plenty of exercise, water, and quality sleep. For more on this, check out health at every size at haescommunity.com where you can search their registries for educational resources and medical providers who will help you to be your healthiest no matter where you're starting. This kind of information has not always been so readily available, of course. People in the past tried all kinds of things to achieve the ideal figure, from the humorous to the downright dangerous. We're going to be talking about two of the most dangerous when we return. But first, let's take it over to Dr. John. Now for some ancient medicine, which is guaranteed to cause weight loss, but is also guaranteed to be even less fun than it sounds. Come with me now as we journey back to visit the ancient people of the Nile and understand why they had to invent toilet paper. An agricultural people with a sophisticated medical profession, the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with the process of digestion, believing that the surplus food residues left in the digestive tract were the cause of most diseases. So keeping healthy meant keeping those regions clean by a combination of not putting anything in, fasting, bringing things back up, using emetics, or speeding their passage through the body using laxatives. Figs seem to have been particularly prized and were even left as tomb offerings. Apparently being mummified is no barrier to constipation. Speaking of mummification, such was the Egyptian enthusiasm for a good purge that the same palm wine that was used to clean the body during the embalming process was also taken during regular three to four day sessions of fasting, vomiting and enemas. Now there's a fun spa weekend for you. Both Greek and Roman doctors adopted the Egyptian enthusiasm for prescribing people pooping and puking. Wealthy Romans made use of these prescriptions to improve their health, appearance, and their ability to overeat and overdrink. Julius Caesar, being notably wealthy, healthy, vain, and enjoying the occasional bender, was reported by Cicero to have been using emetics and vomiting towards the end of his life. Common emetics used by the Romans were salt water or mustard water, although vomiting might also be manually induced. This is not good for you. Tim Hamlin has hypothesized that the fits and seizures Caesar suffered in his last years, usually attributed to epilepsy, may actually have been caused by his use of emetics and vomiting. Now, back to Jess, with something somewhat more modern that you still should not try at home. And we're back. In this half of the episode, we're going to jump back to the 1930s with a look at two incredibly dangerous diet drugs, one for each side of the Atlantic. Let's start with America. About the time Radium Cosmetics went out of fashion, a new deadly beauty product hit the market. 
2,4-dinitrophenol, otherwise known as DNP. DNP's use as a diet pill took off in 1933 when the Journal of the American Medical Association published the discovery that the chemical could raise metabolism by up to 50%, causing a weight loss of up to two pounds a week with little to no effort. Reported as not demonstrably harmful, DNP quickly became the key ingredient in dozens of new weight loss pills, only the latest in a tradition of dangerous treatments that had at various times contained amphetamines, snake oil, and even tapeworms. Ugh. By the 1930s, the diet industry was booming. While ideal silhouettes for both men and women have always been subject to change, women's bodies in the 30s were shrinking faster than ever. When Hollywood's Hayes Code was finally enforced in 1934, even voluptuous figures could be viewed as obscene. The Hayes Code, also known as the Motion Picture Production Code, was a set of strict moral guidelines applied to the film industry's major studios from 1930 until 1968. The Hayes Code controlled or prohibited any content that could be deemed immoral, especially anything sexually suggestive. While it eliminated shared beds for married couples, first night scenes, heavy kissing, and sex work, it also inadvertently changed the way women looked or wanted to look across the nation. A curvaceous silhouette like Mae West's was so sexy it was immoral, and actresses became thinner to avoid the problem, changing the fashionable figure from the Victorian hourglass into the leaner frame that would remain in vogue for most of the 20th century. Women across the country followed suit, and the boyish figure popularized by the flappers of the 20s endured. In a time of economic uncertainty, their bodies were something they could control. Fad diets, amphetamines, laxatives, and cigarettes were as popular as ever, but nothing brought results quite like DNP. Within a year, at least 100,000 people were habitually taking pills containing DNP in the U.S. alone. More than 1.2 million pills were distributed from a single clinic in San Francisco. It was cheap, available over-the-counter in most states, and it was very effective. It was so effective, in fact, that there was some concern that companies producing gym equipment and plus-size clothing would actually go out of business. DNP wasn't a new substance, though. It had been used in pesticides, preservatives, and explosives for years. Highly flammable, it has 81% of the explosive strength of dynamite, and it tastes like sulfur. Always a good sign. Anyway, it was its explosive properties that made it so effective for weight loss. Instead of converting food to fat or energy, DNP turns it into heat, setting tiny internal fires that can raise the body's temperature high enough to cause brain damage and essentially cook people from the inside out. What could possibly go wrong? As it so happens, quite a bit. In addition to excessive sweating, which was often yellow, and shortness of breath, DNP can cause lesions, yellowing of the eyes, severe lethargy, cataracts, liver problems, damage to the brain and nervous system, loss of bone marrow, and heart failure. It should be no surprise that all those tiny internal fires make people overheat, sometimes fatally. DNP is incredibly dangerous, and deaths have been reported after even limited use. Within three years of the initial report on its benefits, more than 100 women in Los Angeles had lost all or part of their sight due to cataracts caused by the drug. 
a San Francisco doctor overdosed and quite literally cooked to death from the inside out. Seven people were known to have died in the U.S. as a direct result of taking DNP by 1936, but by then, it was used as a supplement all around the world. In the Soviet Union, it was given to soldiers to keep them warm in the winter. Even so, there was nothing prohibiting its sale in the United States. The Food and Drugs Act of 1906 didn't apply because obesity wasn't considered a medical condition yet. DNP continued to be sold under various names until the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1938. Under the new act, cosmetics and supplements had to be proven safe before they could be sold. Pills containing DNP were pulled from the shelves, and makeup companies were finally regulated, effectively ending a long tradition of putting known toxic substances, including lead, arsenic, belladonna, mercury, and radium, into cosmetics. But by then, the damage was done. DNP is widely regarded to be the most effective weight loss drug of the 20th century, but it is also the most lethal. Although it's illegal to sell for consumption, its effectiveness means that people still find ways to buy it in spite of the near certainty of death. But DNP is not the only illicit substance still available that makes you lose weight. On the other side of the Atlantic, at the end of the 1930s, German chemists released a drug marketed as a weight loss supplement that would ultimately change the course of the Second World War, and not for the better. But let's back up 10 years. Drugs were not unknown to 1920s Berlin. Okay, that's an understatement. Weimar Berlin was soaked in them. Not only were drugs like morphine, heroin, and cocaine legal, but they could be purchased from every street corner and were all but issued to those attending the legendary nightclubs where any kink or perversion up to and including BDSM, public orgies, and voyeurism happened on the regular. Dancer Anita Berber, the it girl of Weimar Berlin, was known to go about her business wearing nothing but a sable coat and an antique brooch stuffed with cocaine. She was such an exhibitionist, the local sex workers complained that they couldn't keep up with the amount of skin she was showing. Of all the idiosyncratic breakfasts in history, Berber still stands out. She was said to start every day with a bowl of ether and chloroform that she would stir with the petals of a white rose before sucking them dry one by one. But she wasn't the only one. <laughs> Having lost its access to natural stimulants like tea and coffee, along with its overseas colonies in the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was in need of synthetic assistance. As Norman Oler explains in his book Blitzed, the war had inflicted deep wounds and caused the nation both physical and psychic pain. In the 1920s, drugs became more and more important for the despondent population between the Baltic Sea and the Alps. The desire for sedation led to self-education, and there soon emerged no shortage of know-how for the production of a remedy. And produce they did. 80% of the global cocaine market was controlled by German pharmaceutical companies, and Merck's was said to be the best in the world. Hamburg was the largest marketplace in Europe for cocaine, with thousands of pounds of it passing through its port legally every year. The country of Peru sold its entire annual yield of raw cocaine to German companies. Heroin, opium, and morphine were also produced in staggering quantities, with 98% of German heroin being exported to markets abroad. But how were drugs able to flourish to such an extent? Well, for one thing, they were legal. Many veterans of the First World War were habitually prescribed morphine by doctors who were addicted to it themselves. 
It wasn't viewed as a harmful drug, but as a necessary medical treatment for chronic pain and PTSD. On Halloween of 1937, Temmler, a pharmaceutical company based in Berlin, patented a new drug called Pervitin. When it hit the market in 1938, Temmler sent three milligrams to every doctor in the city. Many doctors got hooked on it and, convinced of its effectiveness, prescribed it as a study aid, an appetite suppressant, and a treatment for depression. So what was it? Guys, it was meth. Temmler based its ad campaign on Coca-Cola's, which had only taken the Coke out of the cola about 20 years prior, and the drug quickly became popular across the board. Students used it to help them study, and it was sold to housewives in chocolate with the claim that it would make them lose weight and work faster, too. I mean, it did. It was so popular that by 1939, Pervitin was used to treat menopause, depression, seasickness, pains related to childbirth, vertigo, hay fever, schizophrenia, anxiety, and disturbances of the brain. Army physiologist Otto Ranke immediately saw its potential. Testing it on university students in 1939, he found that the drug enabled them to be remarkably focused and productive on very little sleep. Pervitin increased performance and endurance, it dulled pain and produced feelings of euphoria, but unlike morphine and heroin, it kept the user awake. Ranke himself became addicted to it after discovering that the drug allowed him to work up to 50 hours straight without even feeling tired. Despite its popularity, Pervitin became prescription only in 1939 and was further regulated in 1941 under the Reich Opium Law. That didn't slow down consumption, though. Even after the regulation came in, production increased by an additional 1.5 million pills per year. Prescriptions were easy to come by, and Pervitin became the people's drug of Nazi Germany, as common as ibuprofen is today. Although the side effects were serious and concerning, doctors continued to readily prescribe it. Doctors themselves were among the most serious drug abusers in the country at this time. An estimated 40% of the doctors in Berlin were known to be addicted to morphine. As medical officer Franz Wertheim wrote in 1940, To help pass the time, we doctors experimented on ourselves. We would begin the day by drinking a water glass of cognac and taking two injections of morphine. We found cocaine to be useful at midday, and in the evening, we would occasionally take hyoskin, an alkaloid derived from nightshade. As a result, we were not always fully in command of our senses. Jesus H. Christ. Although Pervitin did well among students, doctors, and those trying to lose weight, its main user base was actually the army. It increased alertness, confidence, concentration, and willingness to take risks, while it dulled awareness of pain, hunger, thirst, and exhaustion. It was the perfect drug for an army that wanted to appear superhuman. They weren't, though. They weren't superhuman or genetically superior. Guys, they were high as shit. An estimated 100 million pills were consumed by the military in the pre-war period alone. Appropriately enough, one of the Nazi slogans was, Germany awake! Germany was awake, all right. After its first major test during the invasion of Poland, Pervitin was distributed to the army in shocking quantities. More than 35 million tablets of Pervitin and Isofan were issued to the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe between April and July of 1940 alone. 35 million tablets. Guys.
they were not messing around. Pervitin was a key ingredient to the success of the Blitzkrieg. In these short bursts of intense violence, speed was everything. In an interview with The Guardian, Oler summarized, The invasion of France was made possible by the drugs. No drugs, no invasion. When Hitler heard about the plan to invade through Ardennes, he loved it. But the high command said, it's not possible. At night we have to rest and the Allies will retreat and we will be stuck in the mountains. But then the stimulant decree was released and that enabled them to stay awake for three days and three nights. Rommel and all those tank commanders were high and without the tanks, they certainly wouldn't have won. Still, no miracle pill is perfect and anything that can keep people awake for days is going to have side effects. Long-term use of pervitin could result in addiction, hallucination, dizziness, psychotic phases, suicide, and heart failure. In fact, many Nazi soldiers actually died of cardiac arrest. Temmler continued supplying pervitin to the armies of both East and West Germany until the 1960s. West Germany's army discontinued its use in the 70s, but East Germany's National People's Army used it until 1988. Pervitin was eventually banned in Germany altogether, but methamphetamine, well, that was just getting started. On that cheerful note, uh... <laughs> okay, look, losing weight wasn't always this grim. Throughout the 19th century, many took a much more sensible approach to fitness. It wasn't uncommon for people, yes, including women, to exercise with free weights or do cardio outdoors. People rode bikes, fenced, played lawn tennis, boxed, or went rowing. In the 1860s, women went climbing in crinolines and crossed glaciers in ankle-length skirts. Courtesan and legendary beauty Lola Montez recommended long walks or runs outdoors, weightlifting, and dancing to maintain an attractive figure. To Lola, expressing joy was part of it. In her book, The Arts of Beauty, she explains, Plenty of exercise in the open air is the great recipe. Exercise, not philosophically and with religious gravity undertaken, but the wild, romping activities of a spirited girl who runs up and down as though her veins were full of wine. Everything should be done to give joy and vivacity to the spirits, for nothing so much aids in giving vigor and elasticity to the form as these. A crushed or sad or moping spirit is a fatal cause of a flabby and moping body. So where does that leave hot person summer? As Megan the Stallion said on Twitter, not so very far from the immortal spirit of Lola Montez, quote, being hot is about being unapologetically you, having fun, being confident, living your truth, and being the life of the party. Now that we can do. It's not about conforming to any specific beauty ideal or dieting until you resemble the average Belgian man in 1832. This summer, take care of yourself and enjoy your life. Don't wait until you lose X number of pounds to wear what you want. If this year has taught us anything, it's that life is short and terrifyingly unpredictable. So get vaccinated and live your best life now. Look, I know it's easier said than done, but I'm trying to take my own advice. Last week, I ran errands in a black sundress, fishnets, and red heels. It's not what you expect to see at Walmart, granted, but it felt great. So this week, I invite you to try it. Send me pictures of you dressed as a pirate waiting for tacos. Go on a picnic in a prom dress and combat boots. Cover everything in glitter and sequins. Wear a top hat to the grocery store, you gorgeous son of a bitch, and enjoy it. I know I will. So that's it for now. It was a long, strange journey, but if you made it through it, I hope you feel empowered. And remember, don't do drugs, kids. Just say no. This week, we'd like to thank our new patrons, Adriana Herrera, Jessica Miller, and Michael Beckwith. 
Thank you so very much. If you would like to become a patron of Dirty Sexy History, check us out on Patreon at Dirty Sexy History for extras like bonus podcasts, monthly AMAs, and our eternal gratitude. Our sources today include Kira Butler, Why BMI is a Big Fat Scam, Mother Jones, Rachel Cook, Hi Hitler, How Nazi Drug Abuse Steered the Course of History, The Guardian, W.C. Cutting, H.G. Mertens, and M.L. Tainer, Actions and Uses of Dinotrophenol, Promising Metabolic Applications, The Journal of the American Medical Association, 101-1933. Rutledge M. Dennis, Social Darwinism, Scientific Racism, and the Metaphysics of Race. The Journal of Negro Education, Volume 64, Number 3, Myths and Realities, African Americans and the Measurement of Human Abilities, Summer 1995. Elizabeth Ewing, Dress and Undress. Adele Jackson Gibson, The Racist and Problematic History of Body Mass Index, Good Housekeeping. Gavin Haynes, The Killer Weight Loss Drug, DNP, is Still Claiming Young Lives, Vice. Fabian Hurst, The German Granddaddy of Crystal Meth, translated by Ella Ornstein, Spiegel Online. Jonathan Louie, The Drug Policy of the Third Reich, Social History of Alcohol and Drugs, Volume 22, Number 2, 2008. Eric McGillis, Rapid Onset Hyperthermia and Hypercapnia Preceding Rigor Mortis and Cardiopulmonary Arrest in a DNP Overdose. The North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology Abstracts, 2018. Kelsey McKinney, Hollywood's Devastating Gender Divide Explained, Vox. Lola Montez, The Arts of Beauty, or Secrets of a Lady's Toilette. Norman Oler, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich. Eric Oliver, Fat Politics, The Real Story Behind America's Obesity Epidemic. Joanna Scutz, The Depression Era's Magic Bullet for Weight Loss, New Republic. Matt Simon, Fantastically Wrong, the scientist who seriously believed criminals were part ape, on Wired. Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Time Magazine, Medicine, Again, Dinotrophenol, June 29, 1936. Andreas Ulrich, The Nazi Death Machine, Hitler's Drugged Soldiers, translated by Christopher Sultan, Spiegel Online. Dirty Sexy History is a podcast written, researched, and produced by Jessica Kale and John Jenkins, with support from our patrons and listeners like you. You can find us and check out our five years of archives, including more information on some of the subjects we covered today, at DirtySexyHistory.com, or reach us on Twitter and Instagram at DirtySexyHistory. And I'll probably regret this, but if you want to share your photos for our hot person summer, tag us on Instagram. I've got my fingers crossed for some fairy wings or a wizard hat. See you guys next week.